Biff Bampop presents Heroes and Villains. And now your host, E.A. Henson. Hey everybody, in this episode I'll be talking with Ethan Sachs about his journey from journalist to comic book writer, as well as the forthcoming A Haunted Girl from Image Comics, which was co-written by Ethan and his daughter Naomi. A Haunted Girl will be out in stores on October 11th. Here's my conversation with Ethan Sachs. Hey Ethan, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks for having me. Fantastic. Um, so just kind of getting right into it, uh, what is your earliest comics-related memory? Well, I mean, I basically learned how to read uh, through Flash comic books. Uh, I must have been around four years old, and my dad uh, brought them back. And I'm, I, I space out as, the, as to the specific numbers, but it was definitely like John Broom era and... Uh, just the visuals were so stunning. And then uh, over time, I fell in love with the X-Men and sort of moved into uh, into Marvel. And the Micronauts were, were a major touchstone for me. Uh, so you're talking about like sort of mid to late 70s, uh, well, actually later 70s. Um, and then uh, I just never, never got over it. Now, are you, because uh, I know you do work for Marvel currently, are you... Are you currently reading books? Are you kind of a Marvel DC split, like a 60-40 or? Yeah, I mean, I read as much as I can, uh, not just Marvel and DC. Uh, DC, I just uh, started writing for them as well. Uh, But I read a lot of independent comics uh, as well. I have a number of friends who are creators and are doing some great creator-owned books. Um, You know, Matt Rosenberg and Kelly Thompson, just a lot of people out there who are uh, doing some fantastic work. So I just think it's a golden age right now and I'm enjoying hitting the comic store every Wednesday and, and uh, you know, just grabbing as much as I can afford to, uh, to buy. Now you mentioned the, the flash is the flash still a favorite character of yours? Uh, one of, you know, yeah. I, I have a, a number, you know, I, I certainly love uh, a lot of Marvel characters too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I tend to sort of now follow a lot of uh, creator teams, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm not as necessarily beholden to one character or another as I used to be. I'm sort I sort of follow uh, a number of creators I really like, and you know, I try to I try to dabble too. So as as much as I can read, I do. Yeah, I think a lot of people that were reading comics uh, in the '90s once the the bloom was off the rose for, um, you know, the big, uh, you know, your Jim Lee artists, your Todd McFarlane's. I think people really kind of had a return to uh, creative teams, specifically writers. And there are so many books, both Marvel and DC, that I've just kind of followed creators from book to book, regardless of what I feel about the character. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree. I just think there's there's so many creators that you can't go wrong, you know, mm-hmm. no matter no matter how you find your way into uh, either a, a story arc or a, uh, a title, um, you know, and it's just, it's just a great world where, you know, Chip can write Daredevil and Batman. You know? Right. Uh, so as an example, um, you know, there's just, there's just no wrong way to do it. It's whatever everyone, you know, likes personally. Now, uh, you have kind of an interesting career path. You were a journalist and still are, presumably. <laughs> 
but you went from journalism to comics. How did that transpire? Yeah, I mean, uh, the sort of not so secret origin story is that I uh, worked for the New York Daily News for 20 years. And uh, my primary beat was what they affectionately called the geek beat. So it was everything from comics to Star Wars to Game of Thrones to horror movies to Walking Dead. It was just literally everything I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of that time, I uh, became good friends with uh, Joe Quesada, uh, originally as editor in chief of Marvel, and then you know in his various roles at Marvel. We just got he started as a, just someone I interviewed a number of times and became a close friend over the years. Uh, 2016. Uh, for May the 4th be with you, the uh, that all-important solemn holiday. Uh, I pitched to the Daily News to interview this actor named Paul Blake, who, who played Greedo in the uh, in the original Star Wars. And, um, you know, I was talking about, we were talking about who shot first and how <laughs> I was old enough that I was four years old in 1977 when the first movie came out. And I remember, uh, you know, it going down very differently than, than it is in current iterations of the of the movie so he just was on he was so funny it was almost like a stand-up comic talking about Greedo's myopic eyes um uh sorry there's a little show and tell <laughs> Greedo's myopic eyes um and how it'd be hard for him to shoot and that he should have been a bounty hunter should have been a flower ranger and it it basically was so funny but he at the end of it he said I did read the script I remember very clearly it says Han shoots alien. And um, so I, I don't know why, but it's stuck in my head. And I had this idea of a Star Wars story that was like Rashomon. And for those of you out there who don't know what Rashomon is, it's a uh, based on a Japanese novel. It's a classic uh, Kurosawa movie. Kurosawa was very influential in the uh, was very inf- influential director for George Lucas. Yep. Uh, hidden, particular- hidden Fortress and all that. Yep, exactly. And uh, Rashomon itself is the story of a murder in feudal Japan. And it's told from four different points of view, including the final one being the ghost of the victim. And each of the accounts is very different. So I thought, wow, wouldn't it be funny if there was a Rashomon-like story with the murder of Greedo and every every witness is like has a different account as to who shot first. So I just couldn't get out of my head. And uh, one day I was at a Mets game with with Joe, who was uh, chief creative officer at Marvel at the time. And I said, this is in 2016. I said, hey, I have, I have this idea for a story and I, I know it. I can't get out of my head. Would you mind if I sent in a spec script it, on the off chance it's published? I'll donate all because, you know, I'm a journalist and I cover Marvel and I didn't want any uh, any issues. So I'll just donate it to charity. It's just like I have this idea. I think it's funny. So he was like, whatever. <laughs> it's not not very enthusiastic, but he uh, he agreed to look at it. And then uh, I'd never written a comic book script before. So I read a million of them and, and I reverse engineered the the structure and everything, the pacing off of the type of comics I really liked. I, I contacted the uh, publicity department, at the media relations department at Lucasfilm because I had contacts there. And they put me in touch with uh, Pablo Hidalgo of Story Group to basically run some ideas by him if it was viable and the end result what i sent in i didn't hear anything from uh from joe for months so i thought oh it must really have sucked and that's it it's gone uh but at least i did it right i i uh and um then on september 7th i was uh 
my wife's Japanese and, and we were visiting our in-laws. We come back, the plane lands on September 7, 2016. I get the email that changes my life. Uh, the email subject, like I turn on the phone after the plane lands and I see this email and the subject line was F Greedo. And uh, so it, basically the tone, what Joe said, like, never mind Greedo to use better language uh you can actually write and i'm angry that this is how i found out years late like you could do this for a living and um around the same time i was very lucky because the paper offered buyouts so it was uh like i'd been there 20 years so it was like seven months pay so if you're gonna do a career change like that was the moment that i i could do it and um long story short that was like the first domino they never published that comic but uh it led me to getting my foot in the door and Axel Alonso was, you know, was a big champion for me. He was the editor in chief at the time and it led to old man Hawkeye, which was like sort of my first big comic. Uh, so yes. So that's how it happened. That's gotta be incredibly gratifying to have been a comic book fan for so many years and then submitting just a spec script on a kind of a lark and getting that reply from Joe Casada of all people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I, it's because I knew him that he read it. So it wasn't right. like, uh, certainly I, I wish that was an avenue open to more people, but uh, right. I was very lucky and I, I'm aware of that that luck. So it, it, it wasn't just like my, you know, it wasn't, I'm so skilled that <laughs> of course they noticed me. Like, you know, I, I, I knew the right person to read it. It's, it's not like he solicits uh you know, spec scripts or anything like that. Uh, you know, no, he's not he's... on Marvel anymore, obviously, but uh, but even back then. So it was, uh, and then also because I had covered so long, like they knew I could at least write in some capacity because uh, they've dealt with me for years and years. So um, in your opinion, what makes a good Star Wars story? You know, we've got almost 50 years of continuity behind us and there's new content coming out every week. And yeah, what, I mean, what, yeah. What 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 does it for you? Well, that's a that's a very good question, I, and I don't know that I can sort of say here's the formula that works in all cases. I think one of the things that makes Star Wars so unique, and, and you know, certainly my favorite franchise from when I was four years old. Um, you know, it's, it's my first memory where I, I remember sitting in that theater next to my father who passed away in 1995, and the memory is so vivid that it's like he's still sitting next to me. Um, but I think what it was is it's just, it's the pinnacle of world building, right? Like there's no franchise that has managed to have something so, uh, of, you know, just sort of, it, it, they basically created their own galaxy, uh, that exists in the hearts and minds of just generations of fans. And I think one of the great reasons for that is, um, it's all it's all connected. Like I feel like you know, I primarily do comics. The comic book stories matter. This isn't just a oh, I'm I'm telling a licensed tale that has no real impact and continuity because we got the license to to do it. Like the things that I do to to these characters and the artists do to these characters reverberate in the uh, you know matter, and they're often have impacts in novels and theme parks and things like that that you you don't even think about, but they, uh, it's all connected. And so they're like little puzzle pieces in this much greater story. So I think, I think like one of the great things I love is that it has consequences. It isn't just some cynical story. 
meant to sort of piggyback off of, you know, this big brand or whatever. It's like these stories all connect. They all matter within that larger galaxy. So I love that. I love that, you know, um, and I also think some of these characters and I, you know, bounty hunters is obviously a little bit of a different animal because, you know, we're not using the marquee characters from that original trilogy, you know, in the same way that the, the main star Wars book does. Um, these characters though, you know, I had Boba Fett on my bed sheets uh, as a, as a seven-year-old. So like to be able to now write Boba Fett, put words in his mouth, like that is pretty uh, amazing. And I kind of revert to a seven-year-old whenever I think about it. Uh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Um, in terms of uh, bounty hunters, you've been working at bounty hunters for what, a few years now has it been? Four years. Four years. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's up there with uh, some of the, you know, legendary, like long runs in Star Wars books. Uh, do you have, you know, out of all the bounty hunters that you've written so far, do you have a favorite bounty hunter, uh, excluding Boba Fett? <laughs> Boba Fett's actually not my favorite. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I was always one of those weird children that, uh, um, you know, sort of went against the grain. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by Bosk. Uh, for whatever reason, I think part of it was at the time the movie came out, there was this TV show land of the lost that mm -hmm. had these like sleaze stacks that sort of looked similar. And so it was this like kind of nightmarish reptilian look that I, I really like kind of freaks me out, but also was cool to me. Um, I think, you know, as I'm writing the, the book, I, I also like, you know, some of the newer valance, who is a character that dates back to the original Marvel run uh, in 1978. Uh, he was introduced um, I, as I've written him. I've I've kind of gotten to like him a lot more. I, I was a little, you know, I didn't love the character to be honest the first time around when I was a little kid reading these books. I kind of felt like he was kind of a jerk. <laughs> he was always trying to kill the droids, and so I just didn't. Um, I didn't. It didn't click with me at the time. And as I've written him, I've written him more like a veteran with ptsd and I've, I've sort of found my way in that way um so i've come to an appreciation with him but i guess of the classic bounty hunters bosk is my favorite and i'm i'm kind of Paolo villanelli the artist who i've mainly worked with and i kind of have gotten to do a lot with uh zuckus and uh for lom um and by the way i always used to say for loam but yeah. I've been corrected. Uh, really, this film. So yeah, so that's okay. why I, I uh, pronounce uh, pronounce it out. But anyway, I you know we've gotten to sort of fill in some blanks there. So so they've also become some of my favorites. And then finally, there have been some characters that we uh, co-created for this for this run in uh, Tonga and Losha, this married couple, bounty hunter couple. So they're they're all obviously kind of my children. So, right, uh, Paolo and my children. So yeah. Now you also did the uh, the Galaxy's Edge book as well. Is that correct? Yes. Did you get to go do research for that? Uh, I wish we could. Have, well, we eventually went after after the comic book had been uh, finished. But when we were uh, tasked with this, it was before uh, construction was finished uh, at the park. So we were. I mean, it was pretty. Everything was so secretive. Mm -hmm. um, we had to go through this little mini course on how to deal with confidentiality and all that kind of stuff. So artist Will Sliney and I, uh, we got access to this creative Bible, which was amazing. It was like 168 pages of 
uh, maps and concept art and backstories and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but my favorite story from doing that was, you know, we knew that we would be out before the park opened. And for many people, this would be the first real view of the, this world. So I had in the script uh, on page two, three, like you would open it up and there'd be this two page splash aerial view of the, of Batu, you know, of the, of the actual uh, outpost. And um, uh, Will freaked out because it hadn't been built yet. So we didn't have like photos that we could use. So like, you know, here he was, he's gonna draw this important two page spread. And if he got it wrong, it's obvious because you know, by the time it comes out, that place exists and people could see it. Uh, but yeah, so he had to keep kind of fixing it as they were changing things. So I think he's forgiven me by now, but it, you know, it, it works because it's just such a beautiful image. And I, I felt like for the fan, it would be kind of a cool thing. Yeah, that's got to be especially maddening for an artist. I'm, I'm familiar with his work because he did some work on one of the, was it one of the Darth Vader books? He uh, he did uh, the rise of Ky of um, Kylo Ren. And, yes, uh, and yeah, he's very so he's, he's very detail oriented. Yes, he's he's also like amazingly gifted in. Uh, he's both good and fast, which is incredibly hard to be both. Um, and he does likenesses very well. So yeah, I worked with him on uh, another book too, The Halcyon Legacy, which was tied to the uh, hotel mm -hmm. uh, that they they opened there. Uh, but the cool thing was when we were done, they, they actually flew us down there. So Will and I got to, you know, pilot the Millennium Falcon together and uh, he crashed it promptly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we got to, you know, see all these places. And I have a, have a story, which I don't know if Lucasfilm would be thrilled with me telling, but... Um, it's just us. Nobody will hear. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you all out there can keep a secret, I hope. Uh, so the, the whole story of Galaxy's Edge involves uh, Doc Ondor's Denovan antiquities which is the store if you've ever been to galaxy's edge it has all these like sort of cool relics and things that are on the wall and uh it involved a heist that was uh set over several eras and um all the various things that i all these little relics that i referenced in this story uh existed like there's a baby sarlacc um that's part of this and there's lightsabers and all these things but there was one, and there was a, there was a, the, the sort of the MacGuffin of the pieces is, is this black sword uh, that is on the wall. So I knew like all those existed. And I just created for the story a kyber crystal statue, this green statue. But it didn't exist. It was just, I just needed something else for the story. But all these fans were like, hey, like, where is the statue in the, in the store? And I didn't know what to say. And then one day it's just there. The statue just appeared. That's wild. So, uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, like the props department, whatever, just decided to make one just to cover the. So they actually made it. I, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world because uh, it's actually on display. That's so, so cool that you actually, you know, you created something and then, you know, you actually just kind of manifest it and it's there yes. in the park now. Yes. That sounds like I had all to do with it uh, and all those model makers and things like that. <laughs> they had to do the hard work, but, uh, but I'll take it. Yes. That's wonderful. Now, uh, as far as like working with, uh, you know, Marvel and doing these licensed properties, is that uh, like, what's your process like in terms of, like, cause I know they probably have editorial summits for like the big crossover. They're doing dark droids right now. Yep. Um, 
how does that uh, influence your process? Like what's your work well, process like? For a long time, for, and especially for the uh, first few crossovers that we did, we would we have weekly Zoom meetings. Mm -hmm. um, so with all the writers and the editors, and that has been invaluable. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Star Wars line in particular and the four books that are set in the same era, uh, Star Wars, Dr. Aphra, Darth Vader, and Bounty Hunters, uh, they're, they fit so well together in terms of, you know, when these crossovers happen that, and that the reason why is because we're working together the whole time, you know, and, uh, that's been invaluable. Uh, you know, Charles, Alyssa, Greg, they're all just, and Mark Guggenheim as well, uh, who's done a lot of work. Uh, they all, it's just, it's just a sharing and giving and fun group. And then the editors, uh, obviously it, it comes from them. So I think those weekly zoom calls have been invaluable and, you know, both the editors and, um, you know, Lucasfilm as well, they, they give a lot of great feedback. Um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's just such a blessing to work in this, in this, uh, galaxy that it, you know, uh, you never lose sight of that. It never becomes just a job. Yeah. It's, you know, cause it's, it's star Wars. Have you, uh, yeah. Have you pitched any ideas to them that have been promptly shut down or anything you can talk about? Uh, well, the Greedo one, obviously, yeah. <laughs> never, never made it. Um, uh, and then uh, there's one that may still happen in another form. So I can't really say. Uh, but for the most part, no. Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of something. this... Okay. I'm working on uh, at least one other project down in the not too distant future which hasn't been announced yet of another character i really like so oh nice yeah because yeah. i'm sure a lot of the stuff has to go up the the chain to yeah, yeah i mean individual editor. ideas might get shot down like mm -hmm. hey what if we did x with you know balance or whatever and they may say eh, not really comfortable with that or something but it's doesn't happen often and it's always always they'll explain almost well actually i shouldn't say that most of the time they'll explain why um, you know, uh, just as an aside, like as an example, of when the, the odd time that they won't is there might be something in the works that they can't talk about. So like, you know, one time for a story, wanted to use uh, Fennec from, uh, but at that time I thought she was dead. And so that nothing I could do would matter with the continuity, but then lo and behold, she wasn't really dead. And she's a major part of Book of Boba Fett. And so then I understand why I couldn't use that character. You know what I mean? So, um, so I think like uh, that's an example of maybe a, a rare case, but for the most part, you know, it's a very like supportive and collaborative group. So they they're as excited about you know potential to telling some of these stories as we are. So obviously you're still a fan, and I'm assuming it's not it's more than homework just keeping up with the current uh, shows yes. and everything. Do you have a favorite amongst the the current shows? I mean, I would say. Without a doubt, um, Rogue One and Andor, like I consider them part of the, they, that is, you know, I, I gravitate a lot to the sort of street level um, stories, you know, and, and, and bounty hunt. Like, I think that's the reason I was paired with bounty hunters. I think it's, it would be very hard for me to do, I don't want to say it'd be very hard, but it'd be a different animal for me to do, say, like a Jedi book. Um you know, it's just, I, I feel like they're almost like superheroes, whereas like the, the people that have to, 
you know, they're on the ground and don't really care if the empire or the, you know, the rebellion win as an example, because they, it doesn't matter in their, like their life, they're struggling to survive. And the, the rest of that is sort of above their heads. I kind of am interested in that. And I felt like, you know, obviously Andor does care <laughs> who wins, but I, I, I felt like not having the big sort of superhero type level um, and just sort of seeing this sort of the gritty underbelly that really appealed to me. Okay. Now, speaking of superheroes and also gritty and grounded, you did the book uh, you mentioned earlier, old man Hawkeye. You also did old man Quill, correct? Correct. Yep. So those books, and I don't want to say it was kind of a new phenomenon after old man Logan that kind of definitely kickstarted the genre of aging superheroes going back to like dark Knight returns. Yeah. Uh, what do you think our fascination is with that? Well, I think in the case of specifically the old man universe, um, I, I think just the whole concept of the superheroes, of the good guys losing and being has-beens and just sort of finding their way back. It's a very long uh, set redemption tale, you know, um, you know, in the case of uh, of the original uh, Old Man Logan, he has to find his way back. He lost so much, he stops, you know, feeling, and he's he's dragged back in. And there was a little bit of that for Hawkeye as well. And, and Hawkeye is just a character I just love mm-hmm. because, um, again, he's a character. You know, like you take a character like Batman who doesn't have powers either, uh, but has all the tools that he needs and he's just the smartest man in the room and you kind of feel like batman's going to triumph whatever hawkeye it's a miracle that he lasts from panel one to panel six on a given page like not particularly the brightest certainly doesn't doesn't think things through before he jumps in and so i kind of like that type of character and then you take that character and put him into this dystopian world you really don't know i mean obviously because it's a prequel you knew where he would end up. But I think there are moments where you sort of forget that and you wonder how is he going to survive this, especially with, you know, going blind and, and having so many things stacked uh, against him in the, in the moment. So I really, really gravitated towards that. Um, so I think, you know, especially cause it was, it was a, a tremendous responsibility to be given that as my first real, you know, uh, foray into comics. So I'm very appreciative of the editor there, Mark Basso and uh, Axel Alonso for trusting me with that. So, uh, and I got lo- a little lucky too, because the artist on that was Marco Cicchetto, mm-hmm. who was literally becoming a superstar as this in real time, as this comic was going. And he went on to Daredevil uh, with Chip. And so uh, I think that was a lot of the success of that book is from the art. And uh, uh, that, that was completely lucky for me. Excellent. And, um, you, and you did work on Old Man Quill as well, correct? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, similar, well, because he is basically kind of uh, the Marvel equivalent of the Star Wars bounty hunter. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes, it, it was. And this this was a very dark story. And I feel like, I don't know what the statute of limitations is for spoiling, um, <laughs> but they're, they're, he underwent a, a lot of losses and had some mental health uh, ramifications from it. And so the, the story, there's some twists and turns where you discover certain things. And I know I'm being cagey, 
but just on the off chance that there's someone out there who hasn't read it yet, I really don't want to spoil those twists. Uh, but that was sort of a very distinct uh, mental health angle to that book that I mm -hmm. was exploring at the time. So okay. that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> very good. Now, coming from uh, the world of journalism, like you did, is that uh, do you have any tools in your toolkit that you took from that to writing comic book scripts, like being on a deadline? Um, uh, you just hit the nail on the head. I think that was one of the biggest uh, advantages that I had coming at it from uh, being a journalist. Um, I was used to deadline pressure and even more than the actual deadline pressure. I think a lot of times as writers, especially as like a neurotic writer like myself, we tend to say like, oh, it's not quite there. And I, I just need to fix this thing. And like, if it was left up to you, you it would never you'd never let go of it because there's always something that could be better and you're not fully secure. But being a journalist, there were a lot of times where I had 40 minutes to write a story. It was not going to be great. It was going to be good enough. And I need to send it to my editor and then not think about it again. You know what I mean? I had to emotionally divorce myself. And that was very hard at first when I was a young reporter. Uh, you know, your byline is on it. It's out in the world. And you, you see all the, you know, things you could have done better. Uh, but over time, you're like, I'm going to move on and think about the next thing. And I think that was an invaluable uh, frame of mind that has helped me a lot in comics, especially because as a freelancer, I'm often working on two or three things at the same time. Uh, so you have to not, you know, you have to let go and move on and like, you know, keep the keep the assembly line going. And so uh, I think that was a big help. Um, I think. The other thing I got out of it is because I work for a tabloid. Uh, for those of you not in New York, like it's, there's a very different animal between the, a broadsheet like the New York Times and a tabloid like the Daily News. The, this, the articles tend to be much shorter and get to the point quicker. And, you know, it's important having a really good lead uh, to get the attention of the reader like right away. And so that way of thinking of, of getting into a story kind of quickly uh, to get that attention, like that has helped me structure, uh, you know, certainly arcs, you know, from the first issue where you have to really captivate the reader. So they want to continue, um, you know, so there are certain things that you wouldn't necessarily think of, uh, that, uh, definitely have translated. And in terms of, uh, of structure and you said, you, you mentioned earlier, you kind of reverse engineered how to write comic book scripts. I don't think there is a, any set way to do it it's whatever works no. for the yeah. writer uh but how detail oriented are you for the artist like i know you know alan moore or whatever he did the whole panel by panel the was it the nine panel grid yeah so uh where 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 do you fit into in terms of detail or stage direction or probably like two-thirds of the way to towards alan moore but i learned a very valuable lesson from charles soul and i'll credit him <laughs> i think like you know, I'm fairly detailed with the panel descriptions for the artist because you have to remember the artist is, doesn't see inside your head. So like they're reading this art description and it's the first time that they're thinking about what you're trying to translate to the page. And I'll, I'll include reference uh, images. So, you know, if it's Star Wars, it might be the ship or whatever. But if it's a mood I'm trying to go for, I might include, you know, like a scene from a movie and it's like, this is roughly the, you know, framing or what, you know, things like that. However, when it comes to action scenes, I've dialed back. I used to be 
I have a whole bunch of action figures of characters that I liked writing almost like trophies. Um, and I used to sort of try to figure out action scenes, you know, just cause I thought I'm making it easier for the artist. And then I read a script by Charles and he had like, okay, on these two pages, I want this, these beats to happen, but have fun doing it kind of thing. And what I realized from that was the expert in this visual representation is the artist. And I don't want to get in his or her way uh, or their way. So I now I include in every book at least one action scene where I'm basically like, and, you know, from page four to seven, this is the fight. This is what ha- where they have to end up, but go, go nuts and have fun. And I think Paolo Villanelli, as an example, just really ran with it and has done some just amazing, you know, action scenes because... Uh, you know, he has that freedom and he has that eye and, you know, and it's just, I think it's better for that. So I find a combination where I'm very, you know, on on the things that I feel like I need to be very specific about and and really show the artists I am specific about. And then, but I give them some, some room to have fun. Now, in terms of uh, co-creators, do you kind of tailor your writing to the artist that you're working with? You know, some, sometimes it's uh, it's a little tricky. You know, like now I have a couple of artists uh, as, since Paolo uh, moved to uh, to Captain Marvel. Uh, there have been like a, a couple, like a, an artist for two issues, an artist for an art kind of thing. And so I, you know, when I'm writing the script, I don't necessarily know right away who would be paired. Um, but I think, you know, I think the editors do a great job of matching artists with me. So you know, certainly for Star Wars, it's never been an issue. Uh, but, you know, if, if I know in advance, I, I and I know, like, as an example, Paolo's favorite character was Darth Vader, just loves drawing Darth Vader. So I had an arc where I was like, can we use Darth Vader for this arc? Because it'd be that much cooler. And, you know, Paolo made it look really good. So, so in those small examples, yes. Okay. So let's talk about A Haunted Girl, which will be out on October 11th. Um, just give me a uh, real basic kind of. I read the issue. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Um, Appreciate for, that. For the listeners, uh, if you just want to go ahead and give us a brief overview. Sure. Uh, so f- this is the most personal comic I've ever done, um, and I'm co-writing it with my daughter Naomi, who's 19, uh, and our. Uh, it's a creator-owned, and the the third sort of part of this team. Uh, Trio is artist Marco Lorenzana, who I worked on my very first uh, eight-page story for Marvel back in 2016-17. And uh, the reason it's so personal, uh, this comic, it's a four-issue miniseries coming out from Image and Syzygy, uh, but it dates back to four years ago. My my daughter uh, was hospitalized. Uh, She battles depression and was uh, suicidal at the time. Uh, And we didn't this it sort of came out of nowhere for us because as parents we just missed these warning signs and we didn't that we didn't know were warning signs and so uh in the hospital waiting room like between visiting hours i was literally writing up some galaxy's edge scripts because i had i had to keep working but you know obviously it was like this this bombshell in our lives um i i hit on this idea that i really wanted to do a story uh about a teenage girl who uh, basically is battling the same, you know, inner demons, uh, but 
uh, is also has to battle outer demons, if you will, like that, that she had to find the will to, to keep persevering to save everyone else it was sort of the, the very cocktail napkin idea I had. I really wanted to be inspirational to my daughter and I, maybe other people too. And that's as far as I got at the time um, and worked on it for four years. But over that time, my daughter, four years later, is now in college and has come a long way. Um, and she's in a position now where she wanted to help write this story. And so um, we uh, wrote it together and um, we teamed with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to include a resource guide in the back of, uh, of every issue. And, you know, we're really committed, like, hopefully for most, most of you out there do not need this uh, inspiration in your own lives. Um, and hopefully it resonates as a really cool horror story, you know, on that level. Uh, if you do, however, need it or know someone who does, like we want it to be inspirational to, uh, uh, to those readers as well. So it's incredibly personal, incredibly cool, and uh, just just been heck of a ride getting it made. <laughs> now, that is cool that you're working with your, your daughter on this. Whose idea was it to collaborate? Does she have any uh, leanings to follow your profession into writing or? Uh, she's always been a, a, a writer. Um, you know, she writes her own like short stories that just for herself kind of thing at this stage. She did do a little bit of um, sort of children's journalism uh, back when I was at the Daily News. Like she interviewed Ali Cravalho, who was, and uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda when Moana came out for the paper. And she really did a great job. She interviewed Steven Spielberg and Ava DuVernay. And uh, wow. uh, yeah, so she, she has a bit of that experience. Um, the comics obviously were completely new. Uh, you know, I can't remember if she asked me first or if I asked her first, because uh, it's been such a blur since. But um, it was invaluable because her role in the band is she was the expert on what it was like. Uh, she voiced, you know, she writes the dialogue for the main character, all the teenage characters, as well as the therapist. Uh, you know, she wrote from scratch the hospital scenes, the therapist scenes, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's an authenticity that I could have tried to fake, but I didn't have. So, you know, I always think like if I, you know, I always say that if I had to write those characters, it'd be like the Steve Buscemi uh, meme, like, how's it going, fellow kids? <laughs> um, so I'm glad I didn't have to do that. Now, it's interesting you mentioned the the doctor in the book, because that was one thing when I, I read the advanced copy that I dialed in on, that it did sound very, you know, in, in my experience, very authentic. So that was, you know, it's, you know, obviously, if she's doing all the dialogue, that's an incredible talent that she has to communicate that kind of uh, authenticity in the script like that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... Some of it probably, uh, you know, I've, I don't eavesdrop into her therapy sessions, but uh, I'm sure some of it comes from some version of something she's experienced. Like she went through some of these uh, school reintegration issues and things like that. Um, and also I, sh I should mention, we have um, sensitivity readers that have been helping us. So uh, Vasilis from uh, Broadcast Thought is, uh, he's been helping us. Uh, my friend Diana who went, you know, 
some mental health ex uh, issue experience. And then um, uh, Brett Wien from uh, uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So it's like, we don't want to, our big fear was like, we don't want to accidentally put in something that's triggering or misrepresentative. And, you know, so there, there's all this stuff. They haven't had too many notes that have, we haven't had to change many things, but it also helps us to know we're not on the wrong path. You know what I mean? Like we're not potentially making a situation worse or, you know, oversimplifying something that is going to make it, you know, wrong or whatever. So I think that has helped too with the, just, just the authenticity of it. And you said you it initially had the idea that it was going to be kind of a, a supernatural angle to this. Was there ever, uh, well, obviously it's a very personal story for you. So you wanted to tell it how you want to tell it. Did you think, you know, even just kind of the cocktail napkin notes on it, was it ever, had you ever envisioned it as anything other than supernatural? Do you think that was a choice to make it more accessible to readers or? Yeah, there was, there's uh, several things. Originally I was thinking alien invasion story, uh, but it didn't, what I really needed was a reason for her to be the only person who could solve this. Like she's drawn in, uh, you know, in the case of this story, she, it, she's an adopted, uh, kid in the story, uh, that that's my daughter is, is not, but in this case, the reason for that was she finds out that she's the last remaining, the last surviving uh, member of this ancient lineage that can stop the supernatural apocalypse basically. And so she has to, no one else can do it. She has to do it. So she's drawn into this. Um, so it, that sort of made it have to be supernatural because it was kind of weird otherwise. Uh, but the, the other reason I wanted to make this supernatural uh, was um, we're, we're dealing with some scary real life situations. And what it felt like to go through it as a parent was it felt like being trapped in a horror movie. Like that's what it felt like. Uh, there was no escape. There was no like you didn't feel the control. Like it was, it was all this, it, you know, it was a very terrifying experience. And so I thought it evoked that kind of feeling, you know, this sort of to tell it as a horror story, but at the same time, by having it this little bit of a fantastical backstory to it, it gave you a little bit of a buffer as a, as a reader. So that's not hopefully as triggering if you're reading it as more of a sort of, you know, like a, a YA, like a fault in, in, in our stars kind of grounded YA story. Do you know what I mean? Like having that, it's a little bit protective. So you could deal with these issues and, and it be cathartic with the horror, but also having the fantasies, like it's a little protective. I don't know if that makes sense, but it made sense in my mind at the time. It does. Um, and I will say, having read the first issue, the thing I found the most, the, the roughest part was the reintegration back to school. You know, you've got your scary monsters that kind of bookend the first issue, but that middle section where she has to reintegrate back into school was just, it was, it was rough. It was difficult to read that part. So yeah. I, 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 yeah, it happens. You know, my, my daughter, uh, uh, you know, she, she went to a, uh, a very prestigious like uh, science and math school, which was very, challenging academically. And I'm sure that contributed to, to, uh, you know, her, uh, breakdown at the time. And, um, she was hospitalized at first for like 
two weeks that she was out of school and she felt so far behind that she would, she went, when she went back, she, she felt so overwhelmed that she stopped going to school and which made everything worse. And so like, we didn't know how to react and like what to do. And, you know, she's just starting therapy. So she's, she had a long way to go before. Uh, and so ultimately she had to, uh, basically get medically excused, but lose that whole semester. And then the rest of her time in high school to graduate on time, which she did, she had to take summer school and she had to take extra classes, but she had that, that reset button. But it was, the thing was, I realized at the time is like, if you're a kid going through that, there's no, like the, the, the hamster wheel doesn't stop for you. You know what I mean? Like you go to the hospital, that's a temporary solution. They essentially throw you out. You're expected to like, suddenly go back to normal, but there is, that's a new normal. And you know what I mean? And, and like, there wasn't enough help, uh, not be, the, everybody was great. Uh, the guidance counselor the principal, like they were all very understanding, but at the same time they had to do their, like, you know what I mean? Like it just, it just was all this thing. And, and you have, you're expected to just go back to being, you know, quote unquote normal. And so it's very much a part of the book. It's like, that's what it's like. Certainly you're not seeing ghosts, but, uh, or hopefully not, but that's that the rest of that terror is very real. And I was reading as far as your collaboration goes, you kind of roughed out, uh, the first or the four issues, uh, while she was on break and was, uh, was it kind of a give and take scenario? Like where she would contribute, you would do your thing and then, you know, email it to her. Yeah. So like, uh, originally, you know, over break, we, we broke it down to the very specifics of like scene one is six pages and scene two, like, and this is what happens in scene. So we did that together. A lot of the basic structure was based on like my original idea. So like I, I sort of took the lead with, this is how we have to break it down issue by issue. If we have four issues, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, the issues are longer than, than the typical 20 pages. So it's like 26, 26, 28, 28. Could have been five issues, but we did it uh, for four for a number of reasons. So I had to just like the the less glamorous mechanics of of having to like break it up and into. I was responsible mainly for that. She had a lot of suggestions and scenes sort of changed based on that. Once we started for the first issue, she did all almost all the dialogue, but she also did the the hospital scene in the cafeteria and the therapy scene. But that was her first time. And as the issues went on, she did more and more because I was like, I'm going to do like, break it down. How many panels per page for everything else but these two stories, just so that you can get the hang of it. And then once after that first issue, she did a lot more of the actual writing of scenes beyond the dialogue. Um, so that by the third issue, I would say she wrote most of it, you know, beyond my skeletal start. Okay. Now you said it was a conscious choice to make it four issues. Um, yeah. Is there, you know, without spoiling anything, obviously, cause I'm going to read the rest of the books, but uh, is, is there more story to be told when these four issues wrap up or is it a definitive? You know, I, I, uh, we, we wrestled with this because, you know, obviously as a comic book writer, you're always thinking like, well, what if there's a sequel or a prequel or whatever? But I think with this particular story, it had to have a definitive ending because, okay. um, it was important for us to have that arc uh, and, and have that payoff, you know, for the readers that, you know, will find that resonance. 
Uh, it isn't like, oh, now she's cured and 100% better and all this kind of stuff, but it is very much like there is a realization and a, and a agency that she, she has over the course of this. So I wanted to give that, uh, you know, I don't know, like I, we love these characters, but at the same time, it's, there's an important mental health lesson or theme that, that um, we didn't want to lose sight of. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't Buffy where there's going to be an adventure of the week or, you know, a season two right? where there's a new big bad or something like that. This was very much like about Cleo taking ownership of this incredibly scary responsibility and growing uh, into herself over the course of this of this story. And so that had to be told that way. Uh could there be like a larger world where there's a prequel or something? We have not thought that far ahead. <laughs> well, and I, I do think there is, you know, credit to be given and there's definitely something to be said for telling uh, a complete story because I think we're almost preconditioned these days to want to see more of something just, you know, or have, have there be sequel bait at the end of the story. So it, it's nice seeing something that's going to be complete. Yes. And I can promise you there's no sequel bait. At the end of the story. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, we, we just needed this to feel, you need to feel good at the end about where she ends up. That was important to us. Well, excellent. And it's also, it's got that really excellent Joe Quesada cover. Yeah. So, uh, shout out to Joe. He gifted us that cover. Uh, really? Joe is, uh, like I said before, he's a good friend of mine. Many points in my life has, uh, has helped me, including getting me started in comics. But, uh, one of the turning points for my daughter was a couple of years, summers ago, she went to and did his. Uh, summer camping thing in uh, Yellowstone and uh, uh, Joe does not live that close to Yellowstone, but uh, I was able to, uh, to visit and, and he uh, just to be a little closer to where she was. And so like uh, um, he just opened his house and like, was just really kind. Uh, just, just so he, him and his wife, Nancy, just the greatest and their daughter, Carly, like just great people and kind and, and so supportive of our family as we went through some of this. Uh, so yeah, so this was like, you know, it was like, how can I help? And he gave us a, a beautiful cover Wow. Uh, with, uh, with colorist, uh, Richard Isenov. So, uh, it's just, a just, a, yeah. Uh, cool. we have actually, I, I just want to give a shout out. Cause like we have a number of incredible artists. Uh, I think we have a total of, um, 13 variants, uh, and just 13 incredible artists. Wow. Uh, yeah. So as we record this, I think final order cutoff for the book was just last week. Is that correct? That was the initial order cutoff. I, the initial I order think cutoff. Fi- yeah. So final is, I want to say, in about two weeks. Okay. Uh, I don't have the date in front of me, but uh, yeah, it's coming up in September. So it's coming soon. Now, in reading up on this, I know that the initial announcement for the this has been kind of long gestating the book, because I think I read some stuff as far back as this, uh, this spring about some press for the book. Yes. Yeah, so uh, because we were very lucky to have Chris Ryle, the Syzygy publisher, uh, the, he had a, a panel and um, can't remember the convention. So he's just talking about his slate. So that was like the very first mention. Uh, so we, we got an article around then. And, um, you know, obviously, the as we get closer, we you know, needed more. Uh, but yeah, so we're, we're just incredibly grateful to anyone who sees what we're trying to do and has, you know, the great, as a, as a 
once in, and uh, well, I mean, I'm still a journalist technically. So <laughs> I, I still work on the side for NBC news on, uh, on certain stories uh, unrelated to comics. So um, I, I have a, a strong affinity for journalists and I appreciate uh, people such as yourself who are helping us share the word. Oh, happy to be of service. So a haunted girl will be out October 11th. Um, and then three more issues after that. Is there already talk of a collected edition? Yeah, there will be a trade. Uh, I do not know exactly when, but I will assume by spring uh, of 2024. So Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. This has been uh, wonderful. I'm really looking forward to actually getting a copy of the book in my hands. You know, there's something to be said for physical media. I try to read as much. Well, I go to I go to the store every week, but, uh, you know, it's something about reading it on a tablet just doesn't do it for me. Yeah. And I, I also have to say, like, we've gotten a lot of support from uh, from retailers. And, and uh, if you can get a copy from your local comic store, like they have had a rough few years with uh, the pandemic. And uh, that's the lifeblood of the industry. So, like, we, we would love if, if at all possible, if you buy your copy to get it from your local comic store. On October 11th. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and uh, really do appreciate it. Thank you. Tonight.